You're listening to Let's Talk Creation, the science podcast that's just for you with Paul Gardner and Todd Wood. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Let's Talk Creation with Paul Garner and Todd Wood. I'm Paul Garner. I'm Todd Wood. And uh, on this episode, uh, we thought that we would tackle some common questions that come up when uh, we talk about uh, creation and what the Bible teaches about creation. Things like, uh, where did Cain get his wife? Uh, What about dinosaurs? Uh, Where does the Ice Age fit in? All of these kinds of questions. So uh, that's what we're going to do. Where should we kick off, Todd, do you think? I... Actually, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the questions themselves. I think I think the whole I think it's just something really interesting and important here that I don't want to get lost in answering questions, right? So there's something these questions are persistent. They they come up a lot. And I guess they're sort of different sorts of folks who would who would bring these up one might be you know when i get these kinds of questions from students they're usually pretty thoughtful about my responses um, and so i kind of like that you know you kind of you kind of alleviate a little stress in their minds um but then other folks bring it up and they're clearly plagued by it, right? The idea that somehow I don't know the answer to this question and it has been eating away at me and 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 I don't know how to handle it. And I just find it very, I find that response kind of odd because it's not like these questions are new, right? We, we've known these, known about these questions for some of them for centuries to go back to the early church with answers. Um, and so it's a very peculiar thing when I come across someone who is so anxious about these things and yet unwilling to go with what seems to me to be a rational answer. And then you've got the people who are uh, who act like this is totally unanswerable and they have in a sense, deconverted, right? You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Uh, they're either not creationists or not even Christian anymore because they couldn't figure out, you know, how dinosaurs fit on the ark or something like that. And you know, this is this is a really important point that you're making yeah. because uh, when when um, we thought about doing this episode, one of my first reactions was, uh, "This is all old hat." You know, we we, we kind of you know, why, why should we be answering these questions all over again? Yeah. But actually, you and I, because we're kind of immersed in all of this, you know, we've thought about these questions, but we don't realize that lots of other people out there, uh, they have never heard good answers to some of these things. Right. And like you say, they, they often are very plagued um, by, you know, having these unanswered questions, perhaps that they think are unanswerable. They've never come across anyone right. who can, you know, give them a thoughtful response. So I think it's really important that we kind of scratch where people itch. Yeah, right? and I think it's really important too that the degree to which I see these questions coming up, and then people sometimes simply refusing a rational answer. Well, I don't, I don't accept that. It, it seems to me, and I'm going to get real 
Christian-y and spiritual here, but it seems to me that the enemy, the devil, likes to use these kinds of things to really eat away at people. He just he just is using them to nag away at their faith and and I think this is something we need to be on guard against. And 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 I think it's good for us not just to answer questions, but also to sort of step back and say, now wait a minute here. <laughs> does the entire Bible, does Christian faith and so forth, does it depend on knowing where Cain got his wife? Or how Noah fit all the animals in the ark? Uh, or am I letting something small and strange and obscure ruin my relationship with Jesus. And I think it's I think it's important as we sort of go through this that we also remember to keep it in perspective and to and to not sure. and to not let it become bigger than it should be. Mm-hmm. So absolutely Paul, why don't I start with one for you? Okay. Since you worked on dinosaurs yeah. Dinosaurs in the Bible. Where do dinosaurs fit in the Bible? How do we, you know, why, hmm. how do they, do they even exist? What should we Bible believers think about dinosaurs? Well, uh, from a scientific point of view, I think uh, it's pretty clear that they existed because we find their fossil remains and, uh, you know, we, we, we don't think that God is deceptive in the sense that, you know, he kind of planted bones in the ground just to deceive us. Right. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think dinosaurs are real, you know, they, they, they really existed. How did they, how do they kind of fit into the overall scheme of biblical history? Well, I guess, first of all, we need to think about what that big overview of earth history, according to the Bible is. So, uh, you know, Genesis tells us that, in the beginning, God made everything in uh, six ordinary days. Uh, the flying creatures and the sea creatures were made on day five, and the land animals and the first people were made on day six. Uh, we read about Adam's fall into sin, which brought death and corruption into God's good creation. Uh, that violence and corruption uh, eventually uh, led to this sort of spiral downwards that, that that resulted in the worldwide flood in the days of Noah. Uh, Noah was commanded by God to build an ark to preserve life. And, uh, and then after the flood, uh, the land animals and the flying creatures that were preserved on the ark repopulated the world from the landing place of the ark. So there's a kind of, you know, 20,000 mile, um, overview of that, that, that those early chapters of Genesis, the early history of the world. So what about the dinosaurs? Where do they kind of fit into that? Well, most of the dinosaurs were terrestrial animals. They were land animals, right? So, you know, a few may have been flyers, a few may have been sort of semi-aquatic, but mostly they were, they were terrestrial animals. They, they were land animals. So we can infer from what the Bible says, even though dinosaurs are not specifically mentioned in, in Genesis chapter 1, we can infer that they were created on the sixth day. Uh, and that means, of course, that they did live contemporaneously at the same time as uh, the first people, Adam and Eve. So the dinosaurs lived alongside those people. Did they live in the same place? That's an interesting question, maybe 
we come back to that. So you don't um, think it's li- like the Flintstones? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there are reasons to think that maybe the dinosaurs were living in some other place on, on the pre-flood Earth. Uh and perhaps, you know, were not there in the Garden of Eden with, with Adam and Eve. Okay. Um, but I think that's an inference from the fossil record. Right. So we can, you know, we may be able to come back to that. But the Bible doesn't clearly say whether humans no. lived with dinosaurs. No. Right. I, I think you can infer that they lived at the same time, but it doesn't tell us that they lived in the same place. <clears throat> sure. Right, okay. On, on the surface here. So, so they were living at the same time. Now, when we come to the account of the flood, Noah is commanded to take uh, the animals onto the ark by twos, the clean animals by sevens. And uh, as far as I can see, there are no exceptions. <laughs> so if the dinosaurs are terrestrial animals, you know, again, I can infer from the Bible that they would have been included. They were, they were animals that were preserved according to their kinds on, on the ark. Uh, the dinosaurs that were outside the ark, like other animals that were outside the ark, other terrestrial air-breathing land animals, perished. And I think that's where the fossil record of the dinosaurs um, can be accounted for in a creationist model. Uh, you know, we see evidence of their rapid and catastrophic um, burial. I think those are animals that perished during the flood. Now, at the end of the flood... Uh, the animals come off the ark and begin to repopulate the world. And dinosaurs presumably did the same. I think we can, uh, we can infer that the dinosaurs probably didn't survive very long in the post-flood world because we don't find their fossils showing up in post-flood sediments, in post-flood rocks. So it looks as though they became extinct after the flood and probably quite soon after the flood. Um, we have to remember that extinction is a reality in a fallen world and in a world that's been devastated by the flood. Uh, animal kinds uh, have, have become extinct since the time of the flood and continue to become extinct even today. And I think dinosaurs were one of those ultimate casualties. And again, we, can, you know, we may be able to discuss why. Why, why did the dinosaurs, um, particularly why, why did they die out after the flood? Um, so that's kind of the, the broad overview of where I think this, this kind of all fits. Now, just coming back to that question, did, did they live in the same place as the people before the flood? Um, one of the things we find when we look at the flood sediments that contain the fossils of animals and plants that uh, perished during the flood and were buried during the flood, they appear to have been buried as whole communities so when you look at the rocks that contain dinosaur fossils, there is a whole community of animals, not only dinosaurs, but other kinds of reptiles and even some weird kinds of mammals. And there was a plant community. And I think one of the things that, um, that, that we can infer from that and from the absence of certain other kinds of fossils from those same rocks is that the pre-flood world was divided up into ecological zones or biomes and that there were uh, dinosaur biomes that were separate from the kind of biomes where humans and most mammals and birds were living. So I think 
they were living in, in different places. And that's why they didn't get buried together during the flood. They're living in different biomes. That makes sense. Just to clarify at least one point, we know that Mm. we know that flowering plants are seed bearing also, um, botanically yes. speaking right and yes. and so when we say seed bearing versus flowering we're talking about gymnosperms versus angiosperms for you botanists yes. listening. so that's that's important to note um just in case we get emails going you know flowering yeah. plants have seeds yes we know <laughs> <laughs> but i also wanted to mention another thing uh so you mentioned at the sort of the top here the idea that god didn't create fossils in the ground and mm. uh and these things, and you also mentioned that these are animals that went extinct after over time. And I wanted to bring up, uh, you know, it's it's easy to sort of laugh at those ideas, the idea that God made fossils in the ground, and and and, but at and this might and for you parents listening, this might get a little PG rated, but I think we'll be okay. Uh, if you go back to say the 16th century and the 17th century, the 1500s, 1600s, as as Europe is just beginning to move into the age of exploration and the uh, the Enlightenment period and the scientific revolution, people believed that uh, generation which is what they called the origin of new creatures, uh, happened by um, the males depositing a seed in the female, and that the female was simply a receptacle that gave, that gave form, uh, that gave the material, and that the seed gave the form. Uh, so the seed was the organizing force. And so there was this thought that perhaps animal seeds had gotten into the ground and formed things that look like animals that weren't really animals. So, you know, we sit here in our, in our 20th century world, knowing more about where babies come from and so forth. And, uh, we forget the idea that there, that fossils could be, could be, have a completely different origin rather than being, you know, fossilized. Uh, dead animals is is maybe not that maybe not that dumb, especially when you're when you're looking at a rock that is clearly a rock, right? It is a rock in the form of a shell or a bone or a leaf or something like that, and it is not a shell or a bone or a leaf. You know what those things are made of. So how is it possible that you could that you could have a change of substance like that? And so these early these early guys where these where these those ideas really first came from. They were wrestling with some really weird stuff and trying to sort through all this stuff without the benefit of what we know now, which is way more. Um, and the idea of extinction also, this was, this was a big barrier to the idea that fossils are the remains of ancient organisms because people didn't think God would allow one of his creations to, to die out and go away. Uh, so... So there were reasons that people had these faulty ideas. It wasn't just because they were dumb or they were, had their heads right. in the sands and refused to believe the evidence in front of their faces. The evidence was just, it was ambiguous at the time and people really didn't know. Yeah, and we, we can be chronological snobs sometimes, we can can't be. we? And look, look back at these, these people and think, you know, what on earth were they thinking? But right. 
as you say, you know, they, they were wrestling with uh, difficult questions um, that nobody had ever wrestled with before. Right. And uh, they were finding their way. And we're, we are inheritors of uh, centuries of, of accumulated knowledge. Um, and I'm sure that people will look back on us at some point and think, what were they thinking? You know, <laughs> these crazy ideas that these I know they're going to look back on us. <laughs> I don't know about you, but certainly at me. What was he thinking? What was his problem? Anyway. <laughs> well, um, how about this one? Perhaps won't take quite so long, but did it rain before the flood? Rain. I, this is a common this is a common yeah. question isn't it yeah it is and there's and it's often accompanied with the assertion that it didn't rain before the flood and that's accompanied yeah. with the idea that noah lived in a desert and never seen it rain so when he built the ark it was this massive act of faith mm-hmm. because he, he didn't know what god was talking about which is a massive extrapolation from something that isn't in the Bible at all. Exactly. And when I tell yeah. people that that's not, it doesn't say that Noah lived in a desert. It's like this shocking horror. How could you say that? Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I think, okay, Noah's going to build an ark that is 450 feet long. He's got to have timber to do that. You're not going to do that with little scrubby brushes that you find in the desert. you got to have actual timber. He's got to live in a wet forest somewhere. Uh, otherwise, it's, not, it's just a no-go, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, did it rain before the flood? And, and I would my, – my suspicion is that it goes back to uh, the verse in Genesis 2 that talks about just prior to the creation of Adam, uh, it had not rained. And there was a mist that went up and watered the ground. Uh, and it clearly says, because there was not a man to till the ground. So the whole, if you go through Genesis 2, you'll see over and over again, we're not, Genesis 2, when it talks about the origin of plants and the origin of animals and the origin of, the origin of, of the garden itself, the, the aim there is to present uh, a very anthropocentric perspective, right? Mm. So the animals that are created are the animals that Noah would be like a farmer to. And the plants that are created are plants of the field, uh, which would be crops, right? And so mm. uh, I think people get very anxious about bigger perspectives in Genesis 2 that somehow this is about God creating plants and animals and they're not in the right order and so forth. And this is really very different, different perspective. And the, the, the way it's describing it is limiting. Right. And so I, I look back at the, at the rain question and I come up with sort of the same answer. We, we look at that and I look at that and I think, okay, well it hadn't rained in the garden, but I don't know that I'm going to extrapolate that for the next 1,700 years, 1,600 years, until Noah comes along and across the entire globe at the same time. Um, I, I just don't know. So I would say, well, let's look to uh, are there evidences of rain in the fossil record that we could point to? Uh, so if you think... Uh, the bulk of the fossil record is essentially a snapshot in time of the the, the sorts of uh, creatures that were alive at the time. Um, in particular, you can think of 
um, the sorts of trees that produce annular rings uh, produced annular rings. And so there's growth. There are growth uh, patterns that are linked to um, annual water availability, which is essentially rain, right? Um, that's linked to climate. And so I don't, I don't want to be too dogmatic about this, but I'm pretty dogmatic about this. I'm pretty sure it rained somewhere before it rained during the flood. And the flood was something when God told Noah to build this ark, this was a flood like Noah had never known before. And so, yes, it was an act of faith for him to do this, but it wasn't quite the act of faith of building a boat in a desert where he'd never seen it rain and he didn't know what an ocean was. That's, mm. that's out of, that's yeah. out of children's books. That's not out of the actual Bible. So I think it's really important yeah. for us to keep those things in mind. And if I just blew your mind yeah. and destroyed your faith, I'm sorry. Um, but my encouragement to you is to read your Bible and rely less on um, what people tell you the Bible actually says. I find it fascinating when I when I actually look at the Bible and sometimes yeah. it, it surprises me. Yeah, I mean, we, we should seek to um, follow what the Bible says and, and not um, you know, be be uh, be cautious when we're going beyond what the the Bible explicitly uh, tells us. Right, and um, you know, it, you're, you're right. The Genesis two passage seems to be in the context of until there was a man to till the ground. Right, it's it's, it, it's in the context of a recap of the events of of day six in in Genesis chapter one, and uh, to extrapolate that into the whole of the pre-flood period seems a bit of a stretch. The, the other verse that sometimes comes up, I suppose, is Hebrews 11, verse 7, which says that by faith Noah, being warned of God by, uh, about things not yet seen, and people say, well, you know, one of the things that wasn't yet seen was rain. But again, that's not what the text actually says. I, I, think, I think obviously what Noah was being warned about that hadn't yet been seen was the flood itself. I mean, that, that's the most obvious reading, I think, of, of that. Right. So, yeah, I, I agree with you there. Um, I think it's really important for us to be very careful about what the scripture actually says and just as careful about what the scripture doesn't say and that we don't mix the two up. Um, because it's when people ask me these sorts of questions about Genesis 2 and their frustrations and their anxieties about it, you know, it, it's important to understand, you know, you may be on a hang-up, you have a hang-up over something that isn't actually in the scripture. And don't, again, don't let the devil mess you up just because you you didn't really read carefully <laughs> or you've, you've just assumed that you knew what it meant. All right, well, let me ask you another question, Paul. Uh, okay. What's the deal with the Ice Age? What's the deal with the Does Ice Age? Does it fit well, into the Bible? Is the Ice Age okay. a biblical thing? Do we find the Ice Age in the Bible? What is the Ice Age? Help me out here. Okay. So, uh, today, we have 
a couple of pretty extensive ice sheets on the continents, right? So we, we have the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets. But we know from geological evidence that the ice sheets were once much more extensive. So uh, we know from the evidence, that the marks that the ice left on the landscape around us, that here in Britain, uh, the ice sheets once extended as far south as London. And in North America, uh, the ice sheets covered virtually all of Canada and extended right down to the Missouri and Ohio rivers. So we know that there were very extensive ice sheets in the past. How do we know that? Yeah, I was going to say. Well, we find, we find evidence of uh, ice erosion and ice deposition. So we have evidence of ice erosion, things like over-deepened U-shaped valleys that once were carved by glaciers. We have evidence of uh, pavements of rock with glacial scratch marks. You know, the, the, the ice sheets entrained lots of debris, lots of rocks and, and, and other, other uh, debris in, in the ice. And as it moved over rock surfaces, it scratched those surfaces. So we have evidence of, of ice erosion. We have evidence of deposition by either the ice or by meltwater issuing from the ice sheets. So we have layers of unsorted uh, pebbly sediments that were deposited by ice. We have ridges of uh, glacial sediment that mark where the sides and the snouts of glaciers once, once existed. Uh, we have evidence of things called glacial erratics, where they're, they're boulders of kind of foreign rock resting on a, a surface where they were just sort of dumped when, when the ice melted. And they don't match the rocks on which they're sitting. They've been transported some, some distance. So, so we can, I, can I cut in here and just yeah. ask a question? That, so are there places... Mm. where there are uh, glaciers that are retreating and melting back, where you can see for sure the sorts of evidences you are describing are down, say, downstream from the melting glacier. So you could actually say, oh, yeah, that's, that's a definitely a glacial thing. Can, is, does that exist? Yes, it does. Okay. So you can go to areas where there are ice sheets today and you can see some of these same kinds of features okay, and so, the same kinds of sediments. So we can be reasonably sure yeah. when we find something in, say, Illinois or near London that looks glacial, that it is not simply some other mechanism causing that. It looks just like a glacial yeah. feature. Yeah, and we do have other pieces of confirming evidence as well. Okay. So uh, we have, for example... Uh, we can study the oxygen isotopes uh, in the shells of microscopic marine organisms in ocean sediments, and we can see evidence that temperatures were much uh, cooler in, in, the, in the Earth's past uh, at the time that the ice sheets were advancing you know, across the Northern Hemisphere. So you know, we, have, we have a whole range of different kinds of evidences that, that, that fit together to indicate that there really was this kind of episode when the ice advanced and was much more extensive than today. 
one of the other things that I think is very important is what is the geological context of these Ice Age features. They're basically superficial features that are on the Earth's surface. And very often they are sitting on top of thick marine uh, sediments, which uh, date, we think, from the flood. They're flood sediments. So it looks as if this ice episode must have happened after the flood because the Ice Age features sit on top of flood sediment. That makes sense. Yeah. So, and in fact, it turns out that the flood is the key to understanding how the Ice Age happened. Uh, because during the flood, there was enormous amounts of catastrophic geological activity that added um, prodigious quantities of heat to, to the oceans. So at the end of the flood, uh, we have good reason uh, to think that the oceans were warm. Uh, and, and indeed, we have, we have evidence, as I've already mentioned, in oxygen isotopes that uh, the, the oceans at around the end of the flood were indeed warm. Now, if you have very warm oceans, uh, those oceans then begin to cool down and they cool by evaporation. So you have lots of evaporation from, uh, from the surface of the ocean in the immediate aftermath of the flood. And if you evaporate lots of water from the ocean and it ends up in the atmosphere, um, you also then end up with lots of precipitation. So we think that the immediate post-flood world was a very warm and wet world. But as the oceans cooled down, the modelling suggests that uh, the precipitation begins to fall as snow uh, and huge quantities of snow. Uh, so it, the snow is falling faster than it can melt, even during the su summer months. And it grows, it accumulates into ice sheets, becomes compacted into ice sheets. And eventually what happens is that the oceans cool sufficiently that um, there's less evaporation from the surface of the oceans, that declines, and there isn't enough snowfall to maintain the ice sheets. And eventually the ice sheets begin to melt, and so the ice, uh, the ice advance comes to an end. So in the creationist model, uh, this ice age is a short-lived episode that is generated by the catastrophic geological activity that happened during the flood, um, but it lasts for a relatively short period of time. The ice sheets um, grow uh, quite quickly. They surge out across uh, parts of the northern hemisphere, and then they melt back. And in fact, we have evidence of catastrophic glacial flooding, mega floods, that are connected to the very rapid um, deterioration of the ice sheets when, when they melted at the end of the, end of the ice age. So it sounds like, and this is probably a topic for a future episode, but it sounds like uh, the flood kind of goes on even after Noah and company exit the ark that there's still stuff happening that is caused by the flood 
Yes. So the, the, the flood itself, you know, after Noah comes off the ark, we, we could say that's the end of the flood when Noah steps off the ark. But in fact, you know, when you have a, a worldwide catastrophe like the flood, the world is not going to instantly be back to normal. <laughs> you know, there is inevitably residual effects from a catastrophe of that magnitude. Yeah. And so there are ongoing geological effects in all kinds of ways, not, not just climatic change of the kind that we've, we've just talked about, but in all kinds of other ways too. Uh, but one of those effects is that you, you have this um, recovery of the world after the flood. So you, end up, you, you have an ocean now that is very warm, that cools down over time, uh, and you have a world that is very wet, that gradually dries out, and uh, this culminates in this event that we call the Ice Age. Now, in the, in the conventional model, uh, there were actually multiple episodes of glaciation in the last 2.6 million years. But in the creationist model, um, we actually think there was just one very dynamic ice advance. So we had this sort of one rapid episode but with a very dynamic ice sheet that, uh, you know, was kind of surging so out. Growing and, and shrinking and growing, growing and, and shrinking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that gives the appearance of multiple glaciers going over the top of each other and that sort of thing. That's yes. It could potentially, it could potentially account for some of those evidences of multiple, um, what looked like multiple glacial episodes around, uh, particularly the margins of where where the the ice sheets. Are. Uh, oh yeah, well that would be where mm-hmm. it would melt and refreeze and reaccumulate yeah. and so forth. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You've been listening to Todd and Paul Talk Creation. If you'd like to help support our ministry work, if you'd like more information about any of the subjects discussed in the show, please visit us at coresci.org/podcast. That's coresci.org/podcast. If you'd like more information on sponsorship opportunities, or maybe you'd like to have a product or book reviewed or discussed on our podcast, please contact us at podcast at corsi.org. That's podcast at corsi.org. Let's go back to the flood, um, because another very common question that people ask is, how did all of those animals fit onto the ark? Okay. Uh, yeah. you know, have we got to accommodate two of every species right. of land dwelling animal? And if so, how is that possible on that? Boat? And it must've stank <laughs> uh, really bad. Imagine living in a barn yeah. for a year and you're not allowed to go outside. Think it back to the scopes trial, uh, which is a famous thing here in the U S uh, where a teacher, a high school teacher was tried for, teaching evolution against state law uh, and uh, trial culminated in this big um, cross-examination of, of William Jennings Bryan, who was representing the Bible and Clarence Darrow, who was uh, representing the, the teacher. And he was, he was examining Bryan and he asked Bryan, do you really believe that Noah took all the animals onto the ark? And Bryan uh, responded, except for the fish. And and Darrow is clearly sort of flummoxed by this. He is confused by the response, and and so he takes it as Brian being sort of difficult and sarcastic. Um, 
but why would you take fish on board the ark? They're they're fish. It's it's a flood, right? You don't need fish. You don't need starfish. You don't need jellyfish. You don't need any of those things. Um, so so my my first response is. I don't think we agree on what an animal actually is, or at least what the Bible is referring to when it's talking about animals on the ark. So when you think about what the Bible is referring to, uh, creationists have tried to sort of estimate these numbers, and this has been going on for centuries. We can find uh, creationists doing this sort of work uh, in the 1600s, when people first started really tabulating how many animals there were out there. and and again and again and again, modern estimates, you know, maybe a couple thousand animals on the ark. And the ark is gigantic, by the way. You could fit three uh, statues of liberty, New York Harbor, Statue of Liberty. Uh, three of them could fit into the ark with room to spare. So we're not talking about a tiny little, you know, a little raft here. Uh, and Noah bringing some of his livestock, maybe. Uh, we're talking about a massive, massive barge that had more than enough room. And, and really, it really did have more than enough room. There is a, you know, even generously assuming that Noah had to take every one of those species on board the ark, you still have a large quantity of space left over after you account for water provisions and food provisions and everything else that would be on the ark. There was space left over. Which I think is surprising to some people. They think that somehow the ark is impossibly huge and there's no way that Noah could have fit everything on there. But when you actually do the math, there's space left over. Uh, and Ken Ham likes to say that that space left over was for uh, other people, right? Noah was a preacher of righteousness and the door was open to them to escape judgment by joining Noah on the ark. Uh, and they refused. Uh, and there was plenty of space for them had they wanted it, but they, they chose not to. So, and, I, and I, I like that. I think that's, that's the act of a gracious God, making, making a way and letting you decide if you're going to take it or not. Mm. Um, so that's, that's one part of the answer. You know, you gotta, you gotta be careful how you do the math and don't include things that don't need to be included. Um, Another part of the answer, of course, is this question of, well, how specific do we have to get? And this also, interestingly enough, goes way back to the 17th century, the 1600s, when people first began writing about this question. People were, you know, wondering, do we have to bring on every different variety of cattle that we know about? Because by that time, of course, there were, you know, people were well acquainted with the different cattle that existed in different parts of the world. Uh, and even in different parts of Europe. And so uh, there has been, since we really started giving this serious thought, there's always been the thought that, well, we don't really need to bring every little variety of everything on the ark. You just need to bring sort of representatives of various types of animals, um, which then we sort of associate with this notion of uh, according to its kind. So... Yeah, the ark problem is one of those nagging problems that people really struggle with. And for me, when you actually sit down and work through the problem, it, it's not really a problem at all. And, and, and yeah, we might wonder, you know, how does Noah stand being cooped up with a bunch of stinky animals for 
for a year. Sure, yeah, we can wonder about that. What did he do with all the doo-doo uh, that they're producing? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, that's, that's a reasonable question. It's a lot of work to take care of that many animals. Um, but I, but in terms of just capacity, sheer capacity of the Ark, you know, the Ark has room to spare. Uh, it's, it's that big, and there are not that many animals on board. Mm -hmm. So how's that for an answer? Yeah, yeah that's good. <laughs> and, you know, I, th I think um, it, it's important to recognize that even if we make extremely generous assumptions about the number of animals on the Ark, probably way more than actually would have had to have been represented on the Ark, um, you can still see that it's basically feasible to to accommodate those, those animals. And in fact, some people have done uh, sort of manpower type studies to work out, you know, could eight people look after this number of animals yeah. um, with the kinds of labor saving devices that perhaps, you know, would have been available to people in ancient times. And, and, and even that sort of seems, seems to show that it's, it's reasonable to, to think that they were able to do that, that task. So that's very helpful. Yeah, it's it's not the it's not the the it's just not what people think it is. I mean, I hear this question a lot, right? And 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 it takes some thought, and you got to sort of sit down and think about it. And you know, you're going to have to do some math, and math is mm -hmm. intimidating to people. But at the end of the day, I mean, you can. You can listen to the skeptics who say, bah, it can't possibly happen, or you can listen to the people who've actually done the math and say, well, actually, it seems pretty plausible if you make some reasonable assumptions about yeah. how the art might have been built, how it was, uh, and what sort of things needed to be saved aboard the art. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, a moment ago uh, the fact that obviously um, – when we're dealing with what animals went on the ark, we're really talking about terrestrial air breathing animals right. and flying things. We're talking about birds, mammals, reptiles, th those kinds of things. Yeah. And we're not talking about fish. Right. But some people then raise a kind of corollary to this. They say, okay, if the fish weren't on the ark, there's still a problem, right? Because, we have the oceans covering the land and presumably all of the salt water and fresh water kind of gets mixed up. So how did salt water and fresh water fish survive in this kind of uh, yeah. mixture of waters of different salinities outside of the ark? Right. How did they survive? Right. Yeah. And, and it's not just the fish, right? It's, it's, there are many, Other there are many aquatic yeah. organisms and marine organisms that have very sensitive uh, tolerance to to their mm. particular preferred salinity, right? So there's there are creatures that just absolutely have to have what we think of as fresh water. Um, there are creatures that are able to live in brackish water, which is when the fresh water comes in and mixes with the salt water of the ocean and creates this sort of mixture of water. And then you have things that really only are going to live in the in the salt water. Um, and that, to me, again, kind of goes back to this notion of, you know, how do we have to save every variety of creature? Um, and, yeah, again, back going back to the 1600s, people recognized that when you, when you bring 
creatures to a new environment, there's there's going to be some acclimatization and some adaptation, and they're going to change a little bit, uh, and sometimes maybe a lot of it. Um, <laughs> and so, when I look at the 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 question of how do creatures sort of survive the mixing of the flood. So the question that comes to my mind is, well, what is the scale of the problem, right? How many, how many species out there have really narrow salinity tolerance, right? Really narrow tolerance for the kind of water that they live in. And then uh, do they have things that are very similar to them that might be a little more tolerant and a little more open to different salinities. Uh, so that's one way of thinking about it. Maybe this, the sorts of the, the critters we see today that have that narrow tolerance are simply, you know, inheriting thousands of years of, of mutations or whatever that have rendered them, you know, very narrowly restricted to whatever environment they find themselves in. Yeah. Another possible answer to that is to think about, you know, what is the nature of the flood? Uh, and I think for some reason we tend to think that the flood is this, we tend to think of the flood in very static terms of, you know, we have here's the land and then water comes up over it and all the water gets mixed together and everything around gets all mixed together. So we should expect to see everything all jumbled up and mixed together and deposited everywhere and there should be no order, there should be no sense to the flood at all. And I think you and I both know that does not seem to be the, what we see in the fossil record, right? So no. that conception of the flood seems to be quite wrong. And so then I wonder, well, is it possible then that you could have regions of the planet thinking in, you know, globally, globally scaled here where you could have water pockets that are not mixing very well. And we know if you do, you know, certain temperature, uh, mixing of, of water with of different temperatures or mixing different salinities of water that they don't actually mix very well sometimes if you if you do it well and do it right well salt water is more dense than fresh right water. right so so fresh water tends to float on top of salt water. right and particularly if during a, an event like the flood you had enormous quantities of rainfall i could imagine that you're con constantly replenishing a kind of fresh water layer at the top of the the, the flood water column exactly um, exactly so and i think i think you know we don't have a good analog today no. for understanding what a global flood is like so i think people sometimes make very simplistic assumptions mm -hmm. about the flood yeah. um and i we we need to question whether those simplistic assumptions actually represent reality right and i think the flood was an extraordinarily complex um and multifaceted event complex and, as you say, without real precedent today. Um, the kinds of floods that we experience today don't come anywhere near covering even uh, a single, like a single European country or a single state in the United States. Our, you know, really big floods, uh, the tsunami, tsunamis that we've seen or, or experienced, um, those, they're and I don't want to be flippant about this, but they are fairly transient. They're very quick, um, devastating, obviously, horrifying. Um, but in terms of, you know, the large scale of things, they don't do that much. Uh, 
not like what the Bible describes as the flood. So, yeah, the flood does not, it, it's not like a river overflowing its banks or a tsunami hitting a, a country. It's something much, much bigger, and it has to have a much bigger explanation. And I think what you said about um, organisms today that have these very narrow um, tolerances for a range of salinities, the fact that they are in effect specialised descendants of perhaps organisms at the time of the flood that were more generalised. And it may be that other members of their same kind can tolerate a wider range of salinities. Right. And the other thing that I think is quite interesting is even some marine organisms today that if you t took them immediately from their environment, drop them into fresh water, they would just die. There's a kind of shock, you know, and yeah. they, they just die. But actually some organisms, if you gradually acclimatize them to a new salinity and you don't do it suddenly, you suddenly find the survival rate goes up. So again, you know, there's, you know, possibly some of these organisms were able to survive because they were gradually introduced to water of a different salinity. And not suddenly. And that's there's all kinds of factors. It's a very complex. Yeah, it is a very complex subject, thing, and, and and that's a really important point too, because we don't have to have every individual survive the flood. We just no. have to have basically two of every kind, right? Of fish yeah. or whatever. And we know that lots of aquatic life died during the flood yeah, because, because so much of the fossil fossils. record is of marine life. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, most <laughs> of fossil, most of the fossil record is yeah. marine. Um, so yeah. yeah. Uh, we know that not everything survived and yeah, yeah, that's it. This is a really, it's kind of a can of worms that we're opening here because there's so many possibilities. And uh, as I recall, I don't remember a lot of creationists doing work in this area of freshwater survival, except pointing out certain, the sorts of things that we've pointed out here. It would be nice if we had, more solid answers if we could get some more modeling and some um, studies of uh, fish created kinds and so forth to be able to sort of get a bit more concrete um, answers to, to when people ask this question. Mm. Well, Paul, we're running out of time. I think I would like to ask you the big one that we've been avoiding. Where in the world <laughs> did Cain get his wife? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's again one of these questions that comes up time and time again. And um, I mean, frankly, I'm a bit puzzled about it, and I'll, I'll explain why. Yeah. Um, so here's how I'd answer this. I think as, as evangelicals, you know, we, we recognize, and it's been recognized for a long time, that the meaning of God's word, which we accept as inspired and inerrant, is not simply limited to things that the Bible says explicitly but also things that unavoidably arise as implications of the text. Uh, and, you know, this is actually form, uh, formalized, isn't it, in some of our statements of faith that talk about truths that can be deduced by good and necessary consequence from what the Bible says. And I think that this answer to Cain's wife falls into this category. It's one of these things that we can deduce by good and necessary consequence from the things that the Bible does say. So the, the scripture doesn't tell us explicitly who Cain's wife was. Right. Just doesn't tell us. Because it doesn't seem it to doesn't, be interesting to the, to the author no. of scripture. He doesn't really care. 
No, he doesn't care. But it does tell us some things that I think are clues to tell us who she was. Okay. So we know, for example, from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, that Adam is the first man. And from Genesis, the Genesis account. Okay. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20 tells us that Eve, his wife, is the mother of all living. Uh, well, that, in that's Genesis, pretty specific. That's very specific. Genesis 5 and verse 4 also tells us something about Adam and Eve. It says that they had sons and daughters. And only some of those offspring are explicitly mentioned or named in the text. Right. So we know they had more children than are mentioned. So if you put all of those pieces of the puzzle together, it seems obvious to me that, that the logical deduction is that there were sibling marriages in those early generations. That, You're saying um, he married brother, his sister? So brother married sister. Ew. And yes, so the immediate response of people is to say, uh, yuck. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's exactly what reasons. I get every time I tell this to people. Yeah. Um, but let, let's let's work from what the what the scripture tells us because where where does the prohibition on close marriages come from? Well, it doesn't actually arise, I think, until you get to the time of Moses right. with the Mosaic law. Right. And it looks as if um by that point, when close marriages are no longer necessary and probably um, problems are arising because as mutations build up in the human population following the fall of Adam, uh, you begin to get problems with close marriages because the offspring are more likely to inherit genetic defects as a consequence of those close marriages because they both inherit the same mutations. Right. Uh, and by that point, God prohibits close marriages. But I don't think it was so early in the in the history of humanity. And in fact, even Abraham yeah. marries his half sister. Yeah, I was going to mention that Sarah. Abraham and Sarah are siblings, half siblings. <laughs> yeah, they are siblings. Yeah. So they're half siblings. So I think that's the logical deduction. Now, um, what's interesting is I a while ago I actually looked into this and. Uh, I looked back at what commentators through the history of the church have said about this question of Cain's wife. And in fact, I wrote a couple of blog posts, which we can link to in the show notes. And there were 17, I found 17 commentators from Methodius in the fourth century through the church fathers like Chrysostom and Augustine, um, the reformers, Calvin, Luther, uh, right through to 20th century biblical commentators and they were all saying exactly the same thing. They were all drawing this conclusion that in those early generations, um, sibling marriages must have happened. Right. So they're all drawing exactly the, the same conclusion so far as I can see. So what baffles me about it is that I think um, that to me, that just seems so such a clear sort of deduction from scripture. And yet so many people have a real hang up about yeah. this, including lots of scholars of repute mm -hmm. who I think hang so much on this question of Cain's wife. And so they start invoking uh, whole races of pre-Adamic people or groups of right. people that were outside the garden yep. Things that I don't think the Bible mentions anywhere. It just doesn't talk about any of this. 
but it's kind of invoked to explain this problem of Cain's wife. Right. And uh, I, I, I find it a bit baffling. I, how do you? Yeah, I, I agree with this? you. Um, to <clears throat> me, the, the answer seems clear. And the testimony, as you say, of the, of the history of the church, this is not a new question. This is not something that we just thought of and thought, oh, no, everything's wrong. Everything <laughs> I believe is wrong. That's not. That doesn't happen. This has been around for centuries, and it's not just been Christian thinkers. We can see even in rabbinic traditions, uh, there was a tradition that basically stated that at the very early, you know, the primordial times, Adam and Eve's family, people were born as fraternal twins. So not only did you marry your sister, but you knew exactly which sister you were going to marry <laughs> because you were you were a pair. And so the point is that this is this is not some sort of new thing that Ken Ham invented to explain away this gaping problem in the scripture. This has been the church's understanding of this passage for basically since, since, since the church was founded. Um, and as you say, you can find it in, in writers like Augustine. Um, and so this is not, this is, this is not new. Uh, so and actually, it helps. It helps us to make sense of other aspects of the Cain and Abel story because you know Cain murders his brother Abel, and you know he's he 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 kind of becomes this sort of wanderer. You know, this, he's sort of banished, but he's he's worried. He's concerned about somebody taking vengeance on him. Right. And again, you know, people often say, "See, there are there, there are these other, other people. people outside of the garden." But why is he worried that they're going to take vengeance? I mean, the, the most obvious explanation is that they have a vested interest in what's happened. Yes. They're, they're, they're members of his family. Exactly. That's why they want to take vengeance on yes. him because of the murder of Abel. Right. Because, you know, you, you, you don't take vengeance on, on somebody that you have no personal connection to. That doesn't make sense at all. Right. They've got personal connection to, to Cain. Yeah. So I, I just think that the... The classic traditional answer to this problem actually makes best sense of what the Bible says. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. But you still, I, you know, we still hear these folks out there, as you say, scholars of of good repute. They are well regarded in the church, and they are well known. Who just flatly say, "Oh, the Bible, Genesis two or Genesis three, four, uh, the, the the passages there clearly indicate." Uh, there were other people alive at the time of Adam and Eve and his family. And, and I just, I, I don't see how you read that into the text because that's what you have yeah. to do in order mm -hmm. to make that true. Because if you read from the text, I remember, I remember as a kid when I first realized, where did Cain get his wife? Who is he worried about trying to hunt him down? Must be other members of his family clicked in my head i had no problem yeah. with that but for some reason today it seems like this big massive massive thing that people get get concerned about mm. and we should we should you know yeah we should be i think it's okay to ask these kinds of questions but i also think we need to be open to the to the answers when you look in the church history and you see that people have answered this basically the same way throughout the history. And it's not just been Catholic voices, it's been Protestant voices and all through church history. And so who am I to question that, that, that unanimity of testimony? Mm. 
Now we could go on asking lots and lots of different questions, we and we've, we've kind of um, run run out of time. Um, maybe maybe we'll have to do another episode sometime where we we tackle some other questions, perhaps. But um, right. and, and we've really we've really only skimmed over the surface of the questions that we've touched on because each of these could almost be an episode in in, in its own right. And perhaps we will at some point revisit some of these these questions in a bit more detail. Yeah, we've definitely taken um, a lot we, of time here talking about all these things. <laughs> yes, we should we should probably draw to a close. Yeah. So. Todd, Todd, do you do you want to tell us what? Yeah, let me let me next? make let me make a few points here. One is if you enjoyed uh, question and answer uh, kind of format, I have a series on YouTube called Ask a Creationist uh, that is available. Anybody that wants to watch it, there's more than uh, there's more than twenty episodes. I'm in the middle of doing a series right now, kind of on hiatus. I'm kind of busy with other things right now, uh, but I'm hoping to get some more episodes recorded. If you would like to ask a question, we'd love to have your question uh, as part of our list. We got a big list of questions that we want to that we want to deal with. Uh, I also want to mention a couple of upcoming things. June twenty fifth and twenty sixth of this year, uh, the Gateway Creation Conference in St. Louis is happening. This year's theme is astronomy, and they're going to be having a number of creationist astronomers there discussing that. You can find out more about that at creationconf.com. That's creationconf.com. And for those of you who are scholars, want to be scholars, hope to become scholars, scholars in training, uh, the International Conference on Creationism has been announced uh, coming up in 2023. It'll be July 16 through 19 at Cedarville University this time. Uh, paper submission. They're looking for uh, if you're look if you're interested in submitting a paper. They want an 800 word proposal by August 31st of next year, 2022. And I'm pointing that out now because we should all start planning and making a list and checking it twice and thinking about what we're going to do for the ICC. It's it's really a spectacular event. Uh, brings together a lot of different arms of creationism and um, every creation scholar should be trying to be a part of that event so yeah anything you want to add to that paul no i think that's covered everything i if people uh, have enjoyed this podcast i we hope that they'll uh, leave us a, a good review and uh, like and share and subscribe and and Everything else that you can, yes, you can all do. those things. Put it on your social media. Follow us <laughs> on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, you can send questions or comments or suggestions to podcast at coresci.org. We have been receiving uh, feedback from you, and we are very grateful for that. Um, and yeah, leave us a review. Definitely, let us know what you think. And you can like us on YouTube. You can dislike us on YouTube. We'll take whatever sure. you got. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you next time. All right. See you in a fortnight. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Let's Talk Creation. If you have questions, send them to podcast at corsi.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot org. And be sure to let your friends know about Let's Talk Creation. And check us out on social media. Thank you. <laughs>